Go ahead, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. And as you're turning there, I want to, again, just remind us, these, these are the words that Jesus preached, right? We're looking. We don't have to imagine the kinds of things that he said because God has graciously preserved the words that Jesus spoke in his word. And so let's turn once again to hear the words of our Lord Jesus who preached to the crowds that were assembled there in Galilee. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus, again, just like the crowds centuries ago, we gather to hear you preach. We gather to hear your word. We gather to learn what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to follow you? What does it mean to come under your sway? What does it mean to come under the reign of Christ in our hearts, and in our lives. And so, Spirit of God, would you bring us under the sway of our King Jesus? Would you open our minds and our hearts to perceive what it is that He's trying to get at here? Would you cause us to walk with the new hearts and the new minds and the new souls that You've given to us? Would You cause us now to walk 
in the ways that Jesus has taught us, that we might truly live as servants under our King in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why you do is just as important as what you do. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Why you do is just as important as what you do. Jesus is trying to direct our attention once again to what's going on inside. Last week, we learned that God calls us to be perfect or to be whole or to be singular in our devotion to Him. So it's no surprise now that when Jesus turns a corner and starts to address us on some other topics, He's directing us to our hearts once again. What is motivating you? Why do you do the things that you do for God? As a follower of Jesus, why do you do what you do? Why you do is just as important as what you do. So what is at the core of our lives as disciples? What's at the center of our lives? Now I want you to see something from the text that actually answers that and sheds a whole lot of light on what Jesus is driving at here. You can go ahead and put that image on the screen. So this is not high tech. These are my notes. This is the best way I can capture it. Okay, And I've got one of these fancy pointer things that my kids try to steal from me before the service and mess with each other with. Okay, So what we have here is in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7. We're looking at chapter 6 now, okay? So the Sermon on the Mount, in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, is chapter 6. Chapter 6, 1 is an introduction. Verses 19 through 21 acts as a conclusion. Isaac is going to address that next Sunday. Okay? So what you have in the beginning of an introduction and a conclusion are three examples. Jesus talks about giving, praying, and fasting. Matthew 6 is one of the most highly structured texts in the entirety of Matthew's Gospel. He's doing this intentionally. Look at what's right in the center of those three examples. The Lord's Prayer. So again, what the question is, what is at the very core? What is at the center? Why do you do what you do as a Christian? Jesus says it's relationship. That prayer is an invitation by our Father to come to Him as children at the center, at the core, what motivates us as a Christian, what motivates us was at the core of why we do what we do is a relationship. We're children of God. That's what that teaches us. Now, I hope the ladies, no pressure now, but I hope some of you ladies do better in the second service than the first service. Some of you ladies are now Bible scholars and you've got all these tools in your tool belt when you study the Scriptures. You guys know what this is. What structure is that? It begins with a C. A chiasm. All right. I know more of you ladies knew that. But this is a structure that's very, very common, and especially in the Old Testament. It's an ABCBA structure. And usually what the author does is he puts the main point he's trying to make at the very center of that structure. That's a chiasm. Matthew's doing the same thing. He's writing to a Jewish audience. This is very common in a writing style. And he's saying, listen, at the very core of your life as a disciple is your relationship with God, your Father. You do what you do because of who you are. That's Jesus' point. 
As Christians, we do what we do because of who we are. We're children of God. That's what's supposed to motivate us. That's what's supposed to drive what we do as Christians. Now, Jesus knows that we're threatened in this relationship by something very specifically. What is it that threatens our personal relationship with God our Father? He says it in verse 1. Look back at your Bible. Beware. What do we need to beware of? What is it that threatens us as disciples? What is it that threatens us to lose focus on the core of what we are, who we are as followers of Jesus? Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order that you may be seen by them. This is what distracts us, guys. This is what tempts us. We're tempted, even though we have God's approval, if you are in Christ, you know that you have His righteousness. So we're completely accepted by, approved of, welcomed by, invited in. We're children of God through the shed blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything God is going to give to us, we already have. We don't merit anything from Him. But instead of living and serving and doing what we do as Christians out of a place of acceptance with God, we actually are tempted to do what we do as Christians, hopefully to impress other people and to gain their acceptance. It's a fear of man issue. Jesus is addressing the fear of man. And he's trying to help us to see with three simple illustrations how to act, how to do what we do because of who we are, how to give, how to pray, how to fast, how to do what we do because of who we are as God's children. So let's look at each one of these examples that Jesus gives. First, he talks about giving. How are we supposed to give? In each of these examples, Jesus is contrasting hypocritical religion with true religion. Now, when we think hypocrite, we typically think somebody who says one thing but actually does another thing. Right? That's what we think when we think of hypocrisy. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Hypocrite here is somebody who actually prays, somebody who actually gives, somebody who actually fasts. Like these guys were actually doing what the law taught them to do. They just weren't doing it with the right motive. He's getting at the why. Why are you doing what you're doing? You're doing the right thing externally, but internally you are so far from God that you have no idea who he is. So Jesus is getting at a type of righteousness, an internal righteousness, again, a wholehearted righteousness that stems from who we are as children of God. These people were not doing that. They were giving so that people would see them and think, man, look how generous he is. Or look how concerned for needy people she is. Or man, look how generous they are with their time and their money and their possessions. Wow. Now, have you ever given like that? Like you see somebody in need and you meet that need in some form or fashion, but instead of being content just to kind of keep that between you and God, you subtly, or maybe not so subtly, made sure that somebody else knew that you just met that need. We do that, right? I mean, isn't this sad? We, even the good things that we try to do, we can sometimes taint them with our remaining sin nature. Friends, this is why we need Jesus. His righteousness covers over all of those things. Even in our good deeds, we need the blood of Christ to cleanse us. Even in our, in our attempts to be righteous and follow Him, we still need Him because we're incomplete 
He's the one that offers us that wholehearted devotion. He's the one who constantly gives of himself, not to show off, but because he actually loves God and he loves people. That's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to represent him. Now, I'm going to use a common illustration, but, but I, think I'm, I think it's an engaging one. I know it engages me when I think about this issue of fear of man. So in parts of Asia and Africa and South America, they have a very simplistic way of catching monkeys. And what they do is they drill a hole in a gourd or some type of object, similar object, and the gourd of the hole is just big enough for that monkey to get his arm down into. So inside, they put some kind of fruit or nut or something shiny so that the monkey's attention is grabbed and he goes for it. Now the problem is, is once he grasps whatever that prize is, he can't pull his arm back out because the hole is only big enough for his arm to go in without a clenched fist. So now he's got a choice. My freedom by letting go of the prize and going and roaming free, or I'm not letting go in this thing, and now I'm going to get smacked on the head and become someone's animal, someone's pet, or worse. Do you see what he's doing? He's so concerned about what's inside that he's forfeiting his freedom of letting that go. And what Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to live for the praises of man, if you're going to do what you do to impress other people, you're not free. You're actually trapped. You're trapped in this fear of man. That's what the Bible says. The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. And if we're living for the praises of other people, that's what we have to constantly live for. And we all know that people are fickle. When we do what they want us to do, they love us. When we don't do what they want us to do, they don't. And so Jesus says, if you're going to live to impress people, that's all you're going to get. You're going to get the fickle praise of people that like you when they like you and don't when they don't. Is that what you want to live for? Who are you living for? Alternatively, Think of the rewards that God our Father offers to us. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you imagine when God creates the new heavens and the new earth that's completely free from all the garbage that we live in now? All of the pain and all the suffering and all of the brokenness and all of the heartache and this constant wrestling that we're doing where we want to please God, but we sin still. All that's gone. All of our relationships are completely the way that they should be. And we're living in the presence of God in whom we have total joy, total peace, total satisfaction. This new heaven and this new earth, he says to his children, here you go. Enjoy it. So on one hand, Jesus says, do a cost-benefit analysis. On one hand, if you want to live for the praises of people and be trapped, and get their fickle praise, do you want that? Or do you want, on the other hand, to live for the approval and the praise of a God who rewards those who seek Him? Rewards them with things like new heaven and new earth. Who are you going to live for? He's motivating us. He's motivating us in the same way that Hebrews 6 does. Hebrews 6 is foundational to our faith. They who come to God must first believe that He exists. And that he what? Rewards those who seek him. It's fundamental to our faith. Jesus is motivating us as disciples to be who we are and to live and to do what we do because of who we are. We're children of a father who graciously rewards us. That's astonishing. 
The power that he gives us to live, he then rewards when we actually live the way that we're supposed to live. That's astonishing. It's all of grace. We have an amazing Father. Jesus is saying, remember who you are and do what you do because of who you are. Do what you do because of your Father in heaven. Remember who you are. Christian, remember that this morning. When you give, give because you give before a Father in heaven who never overlooks, never fails to see, and never fails to reward any act of obedience. You give because you know the eyes of your Father are upon you, and He is a God who rewards. That's why we give. Jesus says, remember who you are and do what you do because of who you are. That's why we give. Secondly, He turns our attention to prayer. So first He talks about giving. Then he talks about praying. Now, once again, he's contrasting hypocritical prayer with true prayer or the prayer of those with a whole heart, a singularity of heart. Now, these, these people, these hypocrites, loved praying. They loved praying publicly and they loved praying when other people were around. Jesus isn't against that. Jesus is for public prayer. He's not for the kind that does so in order to get people to be impressed. That's what he's coming against here. On Thursday, I was asked to pray at Good Neighbor Day. So every 4th of July, Good Neighbor Day happens here in Downingtown. And they start the day with a big race, a walk and a race. So that event kind of kicks off the day. So they have the mayor there and the councilmen and women there. And they ask a, a pastor in the community to pray. Well, they asked me. And I was like, cool, this is awesome. Like, I was really honored. I was a genuine honor. This is really cool to be a pastor in the community that can show up and pray. But I'm telling you, it wasn't long before I started to think, well, what should I pray? What should I not pray? Should I pray in Jesus' name? Should I mention Jesus at all? What are they going to think about what I pray? You see what I'm doing? I'm more aware of everybody out there, not about whom I'm speaking with. Have you ever prayed like that? You're praying more aware, is my theology right right now? Like, is so-and-so thinking that they're going to correct me because I spoke to God the Father when I should be speaking to the Son? You know, we do all these things when we're praying. We're so aware of people around us, and we're worried about impressing other people that we forget that we're actually speaking to the God of the universe. Like, how ridiculous is that? I'm more concerned about what you think than the God who rules and reigns over all things. That's whose presence I'm in. But I'm distracted by all of those around me. We do that. Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. Remember who you are. Remember that you do what you do because of who you are. You have a Father in heaven who loves you. God's not Microsoft. He's not putting you on a word count when you pray. Right? He's not impressed by our eloquence when we pray. He doesn't get all concerned if we fumble and stumble over our words. God's not looking for that. God is after a relationship. He's after His children coming humbly and reverently and honestly to Him to present their requests to Him. That's what He's after. That's why we pray. Now, we're not going to get deep into the Lord's Prayer. Kenny just finished a series not too long ago on that. But one of the things that's striking here in the Lord's Prayer, when you think of it from a big picture perspective, is how simple it is. 
Jesus is specifically contrasting the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer with heaping up many, many words, thinking that we're going to manipulate God into doing what we want Him to do. Jesus is saying, don't pray like that. God is not like a pagan God. He's not a type of God who needs to be manipulated or coerced into giving people what they need. God is a Father who's leaning in. Listen, if God did not spare His only Son, but freely gave Him up for us all, how will He not along with Him give us all good things? That's what the Bible says. Right? So we're going in prayer to a Father who's inclined to you. We're going to a prayer in prayer to a Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. We're going to a generous God. A loving God. He didn't spare His only Son. Do you think the things that you need are any less important to Him? Of course not. That's why Jesus is saying, be simple. Be honest. Be humble. Be transparent. Talk to God about the things that honor Him and the things that honor other people that you're in community with. You're going to a Father who sees. You're going to a Father who knows. You're going to a Father who cares. That's why we pray. Now, the other thing that we see in the Lord's Prayer is that pronoun, our. Jesus doesn't say my Father. He says our. That means when we pray, we're supposed to pray together, but we're not praying to impress one another. We're praying because we're co-heirs in Christ. We're praying because we're brothers and sisters in Him. That's why in verses 14 and 15, We're supposed to pray forgiving others their trespasses. What Jesus is getting at here is if you're the type of person who persistently prays to impress other people, and if you're the type of person who persistently prays with an unforgiving, bitter heart, then you're probably not praying to your Father in heaven because you don't know Him. God's not going to give you forgiveness because you have not first received forgiveness. And if you're persisting in praying to impress other people but not aware of God, you likely do not know Him. He's likely not your Father. Jesus is reminding us, listen, to be a child of God, you've got to come through the one who's preaching. You've got to come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've got to come on the righteousness of Christ. And because you know forgiveness from your Father, you don't pray to impress and you don't pray holding on to grudges. You pray forgivingly. Because you know the forgiveness that comes from your Father. That's what Jesus is getting at. Church, remember who you are. When we pray, we do so because of who we are. We're children of God. We're forgiven by our Father. He's leaning towards us. He's inclined to us. And we go to Him because He sees, He knows, and He cares. That's why we pray. Jesus tells us how to give. He tells us how to pray. And lastly, He tells us how to fast. On a fast. Jewish people typically would fast at least once a year. So on the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar, they would fast as a people. Sometimes they would fast communally because in an agricultural society, maybe the rains weren't coming and maybe the crops weren't growing. And so together they would collectively fast. Or if their family was going through hardship, they would get the community to fast with them and to pray. It was very common. Jesus is not against fasting. Christians should fast. What Jesus is against is fasting that wants everybody to know that you're fasting. That's what he's against. 
Now, if you're into exercise or fitness or nutrition at all, you know that intermittent fasting is like no big deal. Like people do it all the time. It's just a simple practice that lots of people do to stay healthy. But we kind of make it a little different in the church. So over here, you have kind of the rank and file Christian, right? But then those who fast, well, they're like the Navy SEAL type of Christian. Right? Oh, you're that kind of disciple. Like, you're the one that's skipping lunch today, disciple. Whoa. And we kind of look up to these people like they're the elite Christians. We do that. It's sad, but we do. And so knowing that we do that, we're tempted to, when we do fast, if we fast, we're tempted to make sure that other people see us as the Navy SEAL type of Christian. It's sad, but we do this. Jesus is saying, don't fast like that. That's, you're missing the point. That's not the reason why we're fasting. Now, I will not hold myself up as a model for fast. I'm sure that most of you or some of you do this discipline more regularly and better than I do. But here's what I do know about fasting. Like so many other Christian um, disciplines, fasting is more about what you get than what you give up. Right? That's why we fast. When we fast, we give up but we get something. So we give up food and drink so that we can get a clearer, better, richer understanding of who God is. We fast, we temporarily take a break from eating and drinking so that we can feast upon God's Word and meditate it and study it in a unique and prolonged way because we want to know His will for our lives. We get clarity on God's will for our lives. So we give up certain things, but what do we get in its place? We get God. He's the reward for our fasting. And when we seek Him, we find Him to be more satisfying in ways that food and drink are just not. They're good, but they're not this good. So you see, what you give up is not so much about what fasting is about. It's what you get. Jesus is saying, remember who you are. Remember who your Father is. When you give up, you get more of God. That's why you fast. He is satisfying in a way that nothing else is. That's why you fast. I was talking to a friend recently who just finished some backpacking, and he said that one of the highlights was actually when the trip was over, and he sat down to the first cooked meal that he had in a while. And if you've ever been backpacking, you know that like, you'd get a thousand bucks for just a slice of pizza. Something that you didn't have to cook, and something that wasn't like day-old tuna that sat in your backpack all day. When you eat that piece of pizza, it, it tastes like the best piece of pizza you've ever had before in your life. God is saying, that's why I want you to fast. By fasting, you develop an appetite for me such that when you taste and see that I'm good, it's way better than any piece of pizza you'll ever have. That's why we fast. That's why we seek God in disciplined ways because he's our reward. He's the reward that we seek. Jesus says, don't forfeit the satisfaction of God for a couple of attaboys from your friends. Don't do that. Remember who you are. And remember who your father is. You do what you do because of who you are. Let me have the band return as we return. We're going to return and sing again to the Lord. But as I've been thinking about this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew ends by saying this that the crowds left astonished by what Jesus was teaching. One of the reasons why they're astonished 
is because Jesus is speaking about God in a way that people just didn't. They knew God as the king of the universe. They knew God as our great sovereign. They did not know God as my father, our father. That was one of the reasons why they went away astonished. Friends, are you still astonished that God is your father? That's why Jesus told stories like the prodigal son. A prodigal son that went away and squandered the relationship with his father. Squandered all of the wealth that was his by right. Squandered all of those things. And when he got to the end of his robe, he said, man, I got to go back because this is miserable, but I just hope, God, I hope my father is going to be able to just tolerate me. Like maybe he'll hire me back as a servant. He'll just tolerate enough to keep me around. That's exactly the opposite of what he encounters. He encounters a father who is sprinting, who is bent on receiving his son who had gone astray, who clothes him with the best robes, who puts a signet ring on his finger, who gives him a feast. What kind of a father does that? Christian, your father, that's your picture. That's my picture. That's the father that we serve. We do what we do because of who we are. We do what we do because God has made us his children. That's why we live as Christians and do what we do. Amen? Let's stand and sing to the Lord.